You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com, and we are the children of the ages. I'm Matt. I'm Patrick. I'm Sancho, and I'm here with my brother, Sancho. Sancho, good to have you, man. <laughs> good to be here. <laughs> This week we're bringing the horrific comedy. Is that right? It's a it's a horror, yeah, horrific comedy. That's what I'm going with. American Werewolf in London. I think you can officially say cult classic, Matt. I like. I know you like saying that word. <laughs> uh, but first, a word from our sponsor. <laughs> Sorry, I got to do it. I'm trying to pull out an accent. This podcast is brought to you by the Slotted Lamb. Find yourself in the dreary moors of, of northern England? Stop by the Slotted Lamb pub, where our patrons change their personalities as much as our monsters do. Want food? We don't got it. <laughs> Want some coffee? Don't have that either. Want anything hot? We can't help you. Remember, stay to the road and beware the moon. And please... Don't ask about a pentagram. While there, don't forget to sign up for a dot tournament. In gay news... <laughs> <laughs> nah, you just covered gay news. You sounded like Robin Leach. <laughs> Robin Leach taking a dump, I swear. Like, squeezing out those words there. This is the story of two young American students traveling through England on the night of the full moon. What was it? It could be a lot of things. Fate let one live. A lunatic must have been a very fierce fellow. Wasn't a lunatic. What? A wolf. Oh, be serious, would you? And now everything is changing. 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 John Landis, the brilliant young director of Animal House and the Blues Brothers, has turned a classic tale of terror into something new. Something different. Dave and Jack are two young Americans backpacking through Europe. Now we all know that nothing good happens to young Americans in Europe. Since they're guys, kidnapping and raping is probably not in the cards. They make their way to the moors of England, where they stop by the Slaughtered Lamb, a local pub. They get a cool reception from the people in the lamb who convince them to leave into the night. But don't worry, the full moon provides enough light. After straying from the road, they hear a roar and are attacked by some sort of an animal. Jack is mauled to death and David is attacked but survives. Thanks primarily to the lovely people of the lamb. The people from the lamb do to David and Jack what we did to the English in World War II. They help after most of the damage has already been done. <laughs> it's true! <laughs> they shoot the lycanthrope, saving David. David ends up in a hospital where you have some frightening dreams that make absolutely no sense, <laughs> unless, of course, you have some horrible Nazi zombie fetish. <laughs> David also courts a nurse with Nightingale Syndrome. She wants to get her some crazy American strange. David also begins to have visions of his mauled and dead friend Jack, who informs David they were mauled by a werewolf, and that Jack and all of the werewolf's victims remain undead and in limbo, until the lichen's bloodline is destroyed. Why this plotline? 
because this is a British werewolf story, <laughs> and they are very much into doing the honorable thing. So suicide has to fit into the equation. Jack tells David that he is now a werewolf and will change on the next full moon. David is released from the hospital, and the nurse tells him that she is just a horny little slut who wants to bang. So like any American or person with a penis, he accepts her offer. They cuddle in the shower, and he shows her that Americans... <laughs> <laughs> And he shows her that Americans know what a tongue is for. David's doctor travels to the moors and the slaughtered lamb to investigate David's attack. The townspeople convince him of the truth. The boys were attacked by a werewolf, and David is now one too. The day of the first full moon comes, about an hour into the film, and David makes his transformation into a lichen. He takes off into the London streets, and before any English can say, Expelliarmus, he kills and eats six people waking up the next morning naked in the wolf section of the zoo. His nurse girlfriend tries to take him to see the doctor, but David learns what he is and what he's done and is so distraught that he runs away and tries to get arrested by uttering the worst possible things you can say in England. The Queen is a man, Prince Charles is a f and Shakespeare was Irish. <laughs> there you go. Despite his crazy rantings, David isn't even able to get arrested and takes off. He sees his dead friend and goes to a place where he thinks there will be little to no people, which is apparently a porn theater in Piccadilly Circus, unless Fred Willard was there. <laughs> <laughs> While there, he watches the English porn classic See You Next Wednesday, not to be confused with See You Next Tuesday, with all of his limbo-loving victims from the night before. They plead and argue with him to kill himself before the full moon comes again that night. Unfortunately, in this part of England, there's a full moon two nights in a row, and David changes again and changes again and goes on another killing and feeding rampage. He ends up in an alley where the slutty nurse tries to calm him down. He lunges to attack her and is shot dead by police. The moral of the story? Well, there isn't one. Other than a reminder that a European vacation is never as cool or as interesting as your yuppie world traveling friends claim it is. Either that or human flesh is far tastier than most English food. That is, in fact, American, an American werewolf in London. When did this uh, horrific comedy come out? <laughs> it was released on August 21st of 1981, the same day as First Monday in October and Honky Tonk Freeway. Uh, <laughs> what? Honky Tonk Freeway. Huh. Uh, same month as The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, Student Bodies, Condor Man, Body Heat, and Gallipoli. Uh, All right, I just want to give a little shout-out to Condor Man, <laughs> an underappreciated little film. I look That's forward a- to reviewing it when you bring it up. <laughs> it grossed over $30 million. It was the 23rd highest-grossing film of 19, um, 1981. Uh, it finished behind Bustin' Loose, The Great Muppet Caper, and Endless Love, and right in front of <laughs> Neighbors, Fort Apache, The Bronx, and the re-release of Disney Cinderella. Oh, man. Nominated for one Academy Award and winning one Academy Award. Obviously, well, I, for, I assume special effects are. Uh, or, yeah, uh, actually, yeah. best makeup is what it won. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Makeup. That girl did look pretty good. <laughs> yeah, he made a, a British woman look hot. So, although her she's eyebrows no, were plucked, she's no Shelley Duvall. Okay. Yeah, the, <laughs> her, te- her teeth were straight though. <laughs> that's it. That's it. What else do you want? All right. See you guys next week. All right. See you next Wednesday. <laughs> All right. So uh, what else is going on when uh, when this film comes out in 81? There really wasn't a lot going on at that time. There was uh, That was the week that we shot down the Libyan 
fighter jets that came after two Libyan fighter jets that came after us in the Gulf of Sidra. There were uh, two Russian-made jets that went after F-14 Tomcats, and and we destroyed them both, which probably planted the seed for Top Gun. I think actually in Top Gun that was kind of part of one of the scenarios was uh, was a, a fight with the Libyans. I'd like to plant a seed in Top Gun. <laughs> <laughs> And, and also, on that day that it was released, Wilfredo Gomez did lose the WBC Junior Featherweight Boxing Championship to Salvador Sanchez. That was gay news, I assume. <laughs> yes. All right. Not, uh, not a whole lot going on in 81, at least that I remember. Now, the top, the top song of that week was Endless Love by Lionel Richie and Diana Ross. And the theme from Greatest American Hero was number two. Also <laughs> hey, 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 let's not get crazy. <laughs> I mean, that's a, a great song. I have that on my iPod right now. Okay, who sings it? Um, the guy from Greatest yeah, American Hero. It's a great f***ing song. You can't remember who sings it. <laughs> Joey, Joey Scarberry. Is he right? <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> I have no f***ing idea. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> wow, I do remember that yeah, one. Yeah, he's no David Naughton. That's what I'm telling you. So That's right. Nice. Speaking of David Naughton, the star of American Werewolf in London, who plays uh, David in, as the werewolf, uh, what else What else did he do? Prior to this, he had done some TV work. Um, he was in Jason's favorite film, Midnight Madness. Hell yeah, Leon! And... <laughs> And done another film called Separate Ways, but uh, uh, there was it was it wasn't making it. I, I when we were yeah. coming on the air, you were playing that song, but I, I remember that that series. I remember that song specifically. But it's a great song. Did did he sing that? He he was the title singer on that. Yeah, that was it was him. And then and it, it spun off from a from a sitcom, which was even more lame. <laughs> I just I, rem- I vaguely remember the sitcom. I was really young, but I remember I remember that song more than what the show was about. Lest we forget that he was I'm a pepper. He's a pepper. She's a pepper. Yeah, that's yeah. his biggest claim to fame. He was a pepper. I still remember that uh, that commercial. Which Classic. It does speak to the power of of that advertising campaign because I mean that that everybody knows that. I mean, yeah, yeah, and which he was able to clearly parlay that into well. American Werewolf in London making it, so he's classic. Hey, don't forget Midnight Madness. Midnight Madness to to be continued. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but uh, and then the other guy that's in it, Jack, is is the only thing I recognize him from is Johnny Dangerously. He plays his little brother, the DA. Yeah, but but would you guys know him or remember him from anything else? Yeah, he he did uh, After Hours, which was a Martin Scorsese movie. That's uh, actually really good, and um, it also had uh, uh, Rosanna Arquette in it. Rosanna. No, that was a good movie. It was uh, it was a good one of those staying up all night uh, comedy type things. It was good. It is good. He's also known as the son of uh, Dominic Dunn, the guy who does all the true crime stuff, and you know, and they famously lost Griffin Dunn's sister was murdered. Dominique. Dominique Dunn. Yeah. She was in Poltergeist. She was the older teenager. Oh, the older, the older sister. Yeah, yeah, she got murdered by her boyfriend. The slutty older sister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not why she got killed. It was, she was never around for the, the horror because she was out getting banged. Also to be continued. Right. <laughs> a little uh, 
little poltergeist coming up. But the, the probably the best known person attached to the films, the the writer and the director, and Frank Oz. Yeah, Frank Frank Oz was in this. I was tripped out to see that when he when the credits came through, and I didn't. I can't ever pick him out unless he's you know going waka waka waka. <laughs> unless he it, it, speaks, it, it, and I suddenly hear Fozzie Bear. <laughs> Yeah, he's got to do shtick, man. He sounded most like Bert uh, of Ernie and Bert from, oh. from Sesame Street in his uh, in his one scene where he plays the uh, the guy from the embassy in a, in a pretty lame performance, by the way. Considering that you know this came right after uh, the Blues Brothers, and he was in that as well, and, and he had the uh, the iconic line of you know uh, uh, one condom soiled. <laughs> he was a guard giving giving Jake all of his all of his property back. Yeah, but the writer and director of this is too John Landis. John Landis. Yeah, what else did he do? Nothing really after yeah. this. Nothing. <laughs> well, he did Kentucky Fried Movie. He did that overrated film, according to Matt, Animal House, and then the Blues Brothers, the three films uh, leading up to this film. But he had done nothing but comedy coming into this. Right, and then after and then he did then he went on and did Trading Places right after this. Yeah. Yeah. But you guys were talking about John Landis and kind of what this this was kind of the inspiration for uh, another thing that he's so well known for. You want to talk about that, Sancho? Uh, deep throat. <laughs> yes, deep throat. Uh, yeah, he, he John Landis is the guy that Michael Jackson asked to do Thriller. Which, if you look at Thriller, I mean, the whole first the eyes turning yellow, you know, the opening the eyes, very much like the nightmare sequence uh, that that um, David had in the in the field. And then um, the whole transformation thing was was almost cut for cut thriller and American Werewolf in London. You know, like Pancho was saying before we got started up that, you know, that it's been really kind of played out in the American conscience. That's why I think when you look back at this now, it's kind of like, oh, that's pretty cool. But, I mean, the special effects to me are still real relevant, especially for 81, because this was a this is a game changer, I think. Yeah, but the thriller thriller really did kind of ruin it because, you know, it. it the whole thing was basically just taking everything that was done in American Werewolf, doing it for Michael Jackson in a cleaned up sort of Jehovah's Witness way. And then, <laughs> I guess I don't even know what that means, but that's hilarious. And then and then it was played, you know, like every hour on the hour on MTV for uh, half an hour. He even had that chicken shit, uh, disclaimer in the beginning. I do not endorse the occult. Right. The scariest part of that video is that him trying to pretend that he was straight, taken home. <laughs> Yeah, Ola Ray was like uh, you know intimidated by his pedophile nature environment. So American Werewolf in London '81 is it's it's played out or it's it's um, I didn't mean played out. Its concept is being a horror slash comedy, right? Right. Uh, is it either one? Does it do either one very well? Do you think? I think it's more uh, like uh, Patrick likes to say, "Weird for weird's sake." I think it was more of a more of a thriller or suspense than it was actually anything. I mean, it did have some horror elements to it, um, but it was weird. Like, to me, it was like a mix of old genre with these really long shots, like when he falls down and he gets attacked and they shoot him on the moors and they do these like really long kind of uh, John Carradine scenes where he looks over and he sees the guy laying there dead. That's like old school Universal Studios horror movie type of stuff. And then mix it in there with the gore of you know the the werewolf eating everything up, 
and then the kind of then they tried to just kind of add comedy on at the end. It seemed to me. Well, I, mean, I don't even think it was that gory. I mean, the most the the goriest scene was seeing um, his friend, you know, Jack, come back each time and kind of like as he's kind of decomposing throughout the film. But you know, the actual attacks aren't really that gory and even the transformation isn't gory it's it's a really good special effect i would agree with you on that but i think it somewhat it, now in hindsight somewhat fails as a horror film because you you have that attack at the beginning of the film and then you don't have much for a long time except for these bizarre fucking dreams that really make no sense whatsoever that he keeps having i mean does anybody get the the, the nazi zombies or what the hell that was all about that what is that? I mean, I, I almost wish Chris was here to tell me what the fuck does that symbolize there, Chris? So you know, it's funny you say that. I thought the exact same thing that we needed. We needed Chris on here to because he would have come up with some esoteric meaning of all those things. And I thought the same thing. I thought, what the? What is that? Yeah. In lieu of uh, in lieu of Chris being here, I'll I'll, I'll toss out that I think it's uh, it's a it's sort of this random uh, the the biggest the biggest example of the kind of notes about Judaism that you get throughout it where, you know, I, I hadn't seen this movie in about 20 years. And, and that was one of the things that stuck out in my head was the Nazi scene. And, uh, they made a point about it throughout that these were two Jewish kids traveling. John Landis is Jewish. And, um, uh, you know, there's the joke from the, from, uh, nurse Gallagher who was played by uh, Sarah Ferguson, the princess of uh, York, <laughs> um, uh, and and you know and she says she had a look and she thinks he's Jewish and that and that was kind of the only tie I could think is the the Nazi thing other than that you know people coming in and murdering your family no tie to being a werewolf whatsoever so that that's as good as it gets for me yeah and uh, we all got to see that he he was uh, he was Jewish so <laughs> right they show his little David a couple times. Uh, way too many times for me. <laughs> yes. Also, it's interesting to note this was the '80s where people still had Bush, <laughs> <laughs> and lots of it, and lots of it. To, to get at your your main point that you were making about you know is this a comedy or was it a, a horror film or did it work on either level? It's kind of funny because uh, you know I saw it at the time, but I was I was a kid and and then I just watched it for the first time in about 20 years. And at the time, Roger Ebert his his review is he said that. It seems curiously unfinished, as if Landis spent all his energy on spectacular set pieces and then didn't bo- want to bother with things like transitions, character development, or an ending. Yeah, so that pretty much nails it, I think. Yeah. But you were t- you were saying, Pancho, that that there was a cr- there was a, some concern that it, it didn't really fit into either category very well. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't sell at first. That's what the you know the uh, one of the pieces that I saw written about it. at the time they. He had uh, Landis had a hard time selling it. He he first wrote it in '69, and then um, you know once he started making some money and made made some movies and was successful, he was trying to pitch it. And producers were saying, "Well, you know, it's uh, it's it's you know, whether we think it's actually funny or not." People were saying it was too lighthearted to be a full on horror film in script when they looked at the script, and then others thought it was it was way too graphic and violent to that it was inappropriate to throw the comedy in along with it so a lot of people walked on it before it finally got made Hmm. see and i and i took kind of a different take is that it wasn't funny enough to be a comedy and it really wasn't gory or suspenseful enough to be a horror so it just failed on both uh on both counts so here here was the thing that i came away with uh 
having watched it just this afternoon for the first time in a long time. I, I did think it was funny at the time when I saw it, uh, you know, back in 81. Um, but I agree. It, it really isn't a very funny movie. And, and particularly whenever, you know, David Naughton's on screen, it's not that funny. There are some funny throwaway lines, um, that people have, but really the funniest element is Griffin Dunn's character. And he only shows up in a, in a few scenes. In terms of the horror, though, what I would say is, is at the time, it was pretty shocking. I, I remember sitting in the theater, and there were, there were three big shocks that they didn't shock me this time. But when you had not seen this film at all and you saw it cold, especially in a movie theater, the, the original attack on the Moors was really terrifying for people because it was... Um, in terms of gore and things that we've seen now, it's not that bad. And even in movies like Taxi Driver, you know, that, that was some serious gore, and that was in 74. But, it, but in this one, when you just see the, the, the savagery, because you get to you see, uh, you know, Griffin Dunn being shredded, basically, and then you see the body lying there, that, that freaked audiences out. That was pretty intense. The other one is the, uh, the second attack is, is kind of a big deal, and, 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 or actually the third, when he goes through... Piccadilly Circus, and he lops off the guy's head and everything else. But the real one was the final shot of the film when uh, Jenny Agutter is there, and she's just, you know, she sees her boyfriend get shot, and then she's just sobbing, and then they have the blue moon cuts in. Um, that 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 was one of those, you know, real shocker-type endings that people weren't expecting. But now it's it's all played out. Yeah, I uh, you, you were talking about, Sancho, the uh, kind of the, the way it was shot, and I was thinking of it like M. Night Shyamalan, where he was trying to be suspenseful, right? And so, and I agree with you, Pancho, those three scenes, you know, are, are pretty good, uh, even looking back on it, but they're just too few, uh, yeah. so it's, it's, it's not satisfying. Mm-hmm. But, they, but they seem to, well, why I'm related to kind of M. Night Shyamalan is, is that he's, they show glimpses, right? They don't really ever. Uh, show the the beast until the very end, finally, or the the werewolf till the very end. They just kind of you see glimpses, and then it's kind of this constant buildup. The whole middle scene where he's at the at the hospital and then at the at the apartment, just nothing is happening. You're waiting for something to happen, and it never really does. Yeah, but the whole second act drags. The, it's like they didn't know what they wanted to do. That one of the scenes I th- I, I think was very effective as far as suspense wise is the the guy being pursued through the kind of the London Underground through the the, the tube yeah. system that the, you see the first person the first person view yeah the first person view and you can see the wolf in the distance and I, you know I think oh that's that's pretty suspenseful but this is coming after you've already pretty much seen the wolf in the transformation, which is a great scene, but why are you being so coy with it at this point in time is that right. earlier, if you would have put that earlier in the film, I think it's a much more effective when you ultimately get the transformation, you get this full view after that. You feel, I feel like you're cheating me. It's that you're, you, you don't want to show it to me because you can't, you can't do it in the bright light and show it as an effective special effect. Mm-hmm. Which that does come across because when you do see the thing, and I remember even kind of feeling this at the time you looked at it, it's like, it doesn't really look like a werewolf. It doesn't really look like a wolf. It looks like some sort of bear with bigger fangs or something. <laughs> it is. It's a big bear. You know, we've alluded to it a couple different times. The change scene where he's or the transformation scene is pretty effing good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. But but you know, it's interesting when you're talking about this about how it, it killed the suspense. It's almost like Landis couldn't help himself. You know, I right? Mean, he knew that Baker was going to be able to pull this off, and so it's sort of like 
they did all those great effects because they could. Mm-hmm. And and it does. It is pretty intense, you know, when you're watching it, and especially the first time. But there were t- a little too many of those lingering shots where it's like, wow, look what we can do, you know? Right. Poncho had a copy of this somehow when we were kids. I don't know if we got it in Tijuana or what, but we... I remember seeing clips of it, and I was I was younger, and I remember the a couple things put the zap on my brain. The one when he, the 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 nightmare when he's in the in the hospital bed out in the woods, and and the nurse comes up, and his face is like yeah, that was it, good. Yeah, it looks like um, it looks like uh, the demon in uh, the Exorcist with the eyes and stuff. That one, but but the actual transformation scene really kind of freaked me out, and I remember watching it today, thinking you know he. This guy, uh, David Naughton, did such a good job of sounding like a man who is really being, like, ripped in half. Yeah. But then I'm thinking to myself, how can he be such a shitty actor otherwise? (laughs) Not make anything believable this entire movie, you know? Well, it's weird, though, right? When he first starts, he jumps up, and he's like, ah, I'm hot, and he just strips down nude. And you're like, what? Where's that coming? Yeah. Yeah. Is he on ecstasy yeah. or something? Or yeah, it is. That's exactly what it is, man. In the movie theater, when he starts doing the same thing, it's like the guy's beating off in the back. Of the- <laughs> <laughs> really having a good time. Now, uh, what I remember when I was a kid, I remember the cha- the transition scene, but I remember hearing that the sex scene that the, that that was also what made it kind of a hard R or almost an X. I remember hearing that supposedly it, it was, but the the sex scene does seem kind of graphic to me even in, in looking back but certainly for 81 i thought i thought it was tender uh <laughs> where they're biting on each other's shoulders in the shower i yeah. just thought it was great because it's jenny agater and yeah i want more of that i could have gone for another 45 minutes of just that scene and um and more of his penis and <laughs> wrap the whole thing up you know the, the one thing that i will say about yeah i remember that being a big deal too but i don't ever recall seeing the sex scene as a kid i just remember hearing that it was that movie was pretty raw and that it wasn't for kids quote unquote right. but in regards to that just kind of transitioning but the music in this i think is probably the best part and john landis always has good music and plus he's got the cash to get the music which i think was good that he used you know Bad Moon Rising and uh, Blue Moon, and he d- does a rendition with uh, I think it's Sam Cooke. That was pretty good. And then um, using Moon Dance, the uh, right. Van Morrison, that was like that was probably the most memorable, iconic scene. You know, she says, "Would you like to watch the telly while I shower?" You know, and then Moon Dance comes on, and it's just a great transition. And he's in there rubbing soap on her. Yeah, and good. every and every song is is related to. To moon, which is that's interesting. Uh, you yeah. can, you can, had a motif that carried through, and I thought it was a, a good use of it. It makes it I mean when you're watching the film repeatedly, or you're getting prepared for something like this, is it makes it you know that you read notes like that and you pay attention to the music, and and it actually is good music. Although I will dispute with you, Sancho, that John Landis always good uses good music in his films. You need to hear Greg's version of Animal House off the Animal House podcast. <laughs> Animal House. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty bad. Animal House. Uh, and then we referenced the, the ending, and it is it is a non-typical Hollywood ending. And that, that was kind of one of my favorite parts is he gets shot, and it just ends with the, with the good music uh, yeah. leading out. Yeah, and I, and I did like that part of it. Yeah, even today watching it, that, that still worked for me. I thought that, that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I was glad that it was just over. Right then, and that, they, and that they chose to do it that way, and really there was nothing to tie up. That was the thing, and they're just like, "That's it." But uh, 
like one of the, one funny thing I thought leading up to it is they got the SWAT guys in the car, you know, and they're driving over there and they're loading bullets into their magazine. That's so British, you know. Right. It's right. like <laughs> we've got a problem. Now let's go get some guns. Right. Let's put bullets in the guns and let's shoot this bear. Well, they and they said that uh, the the guys who were trying to hold the the monster back in the porn theater, they they're like call for rifles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they they had to they had to actually drive guns to the scene so they could shoot the guys. Now we also talked about uh before we wrap up or we talked about some of the John Landis signatures that he brings up in all the all of his films. Uh, were they in were there some in this film? Yeah, they use the see you next Wednesday, which is a recurrent theme uh in John Landis movies which was originally I think taken from uh Space Odyssey. And it's a statement that one of the what astronauts makes yeah. saying goodbye to his family. He was talking to them on the on on the TV phone, on the bid phone, and uh, and that shows up in every one of his movies. And and this was the the biggest use of it because they're actually they sit through the movie. See you next Wednesday, which was actually one of the funniest parts of the movie is the actual <laughs> porn movie going the, on. The action, the, like the dialogue in the porn movie, is really funny. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And the actors were actually more believable than David Naughton. Right, <laughs> they, were, they were. They were. Yeah, that's one one thing is that. Watching it now is that uh, I, I just thought that the the relationship between the two of them was like not at all believable. I mean, what a nut job she must have been to taking some werewolf guy home with him with all these nightmares and everything. But you know, okay, yeah, she is just a freak and wanted to get together with him. But that and then another weird thing was the angle. Or I'm sorry, the the filter they kept using on her. Did you see that? Yes. Like one shot on him was straight away and clear, and then they used a soft filter on her. And I. I, I have a theory about that. Here's my theory, and it was one of the things I wanted to point out, is is there this thing that they did back in those days, which is, you know, David Naughton was 30 when they made this movie, and Jenny Agater was 29, and Griffin Dunn was 26. And we're supposed to believe these guys are college kids hiking through Europe. And, and for some reason, this is one of the things that we grew up with, is that people our age weren't allowed to play people our age we always had you know, right. john travolta was playing you know high school kids and and henry winkler was supposed to be the the local young hoodlum and uh and so i think that's why they had to throw the fuzzy gauze filter on there to make her look like she was younger than than 30 well they didn't need it on her ass because that looks clear <laughs> as a bell pretty fine <clears throat> you know we were talking about the bad acting and of course it's john landis i was interested to see that uh that they were, the studio was hoping that John Landis would be able to get Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi for uh, David and Jack, and what it, then it might have been a little, might have been funny. Is that true? Yeah. Um, oh, that would have worked. That would have worked much better. I mean, and, and that that kind of is part of the mystery for me because I was thinking that you know whether Animal House is great or not, it was it was okay and it was pretty successful. But but there is this kind of spottiness with Landis because. You know, he he was coming right off of Blues Brothers, and that that movie is tight. You know, the shots are all tight. The acting worked. There's so many great, memorable lines in it. Then he makes this, and then after this, he makes Trading Places, which I think held together really well and was, you know, you could argue you'll remember funny parts of that movie, and something happened here. I don't know what it was. Maybe he just wanted to go hang out in England for a while. Right, but you know, and part of it kind of could have been the cast. Is that well, yeah. the writing was bad, but it, cast could have improved it. Well, David yeah. Naughton is not that is not a good actor, and I agree with you that if you would have gone with straight comedians, then maybe you would have more comedy in this. Even 
now looking back at it and watching the delivery of the lines is not nearly as funny as it was when I was a kid. Uh, and, you know, and the, thinking of the one line I remember distinctly was from when I was a kid that I always thought was funny is when they first hear the wolf howl and they're out, out on the moors and they say, beware the moon, you know, whoops, you know, we uh, stay on the road, whoops. And I, w- I saw that scene. I said, God, I, I thought that was funny when I was a kid. It just it didn't it didn't play out as well as me as well as I remembered it. But if you would have had someone like Dan Aykroyd or John Belushi doing it, probably would have worked a lot better. Now, one thing that was pretty good, I thought, the the sense of uh, them being circled and panicking yeah. is that they he, and I don't know if this was a mistake or what, but the whole concept of them kind of trying to to uh, soothe themselves by just kind of joking around. Yeah. And then when they do get attacked, it's not like this whole, we're going to put up a fight. They, they just got, you know, they just got sucker punched and then just attacked. And, it, you know, my experience has been that when I'm attacked by werewolves, it's usually a lot like that. And not <laughs> runs away. All right, let's, let's uh, break this film down. Poncho. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it was, it was seemed better at the time. Doesn't hold up very well. And I think fat guy Roger Ebert got it right. It was a lot of cool shots strung together, no real story, crappy acting by uh, David Naughton, no chemistry with the girl, but it was great to see her naked. Sancho. Yeah, I'll agree. It was great to see her naked. Uh, And (laughs) quite frankly, it was good to see David Naughton naked. I was wondering what was behind that vest in those Dr. Pepper commercials all those years. Well, it also makes you feel pretty good about yourself when you see David Naughton. Sure. Uh, I would say I I never saw this movie all the way through. I was surprised today when I watched it. I thought, well, I never had seen this. But anyway, I would give it a low C. I just think for for all the reasons you guys said, too, it was just really disjointed. And and I think, Matt, you had told me on a text that uh, I could fast forward the entire hour in the middle. And the, that's, that's a great description of, of this movie. The, the end caps kind of seem to be the whole thing, and then the transition and everything else kind of eats it. Yeah, I uh, I like the transition scene. Even the beginning, the, the, the first kill scene or the first attack scene is pretty good. And, and I don't. I hate the hospital scene. I'd fast forward through that. I like the transition scene, and then the the end attack scene's fine. But other than the uh, as, as good as the special effects are, this movie does not stand the test of time for me. Patrick, I loved this movie. I didn't see it until about probably the mid '80s. I saw it on video, and I loved this movie. And I thought it was a funny movie. Obviously, I don't remember it accurately because. This was a it was it was a ninety minute chore to get through that I was surprised at how slow moving it was how a lack of werewolves there were I mean the first attack and then you don't see another you don't see the transformation until about halfway through the bizarre dreams just didn't really make make sense to me why are you doing this other than to show some gore some special effects some you know Nazi zombie masks you know it, it just nothing seemed to make sense in the film it just seemed to be let's throw the scene up and let's put this in here just trying to make it like he's his mind is going a little bit crazy and and i was really taken back about how bad david naughton was as an actor in this film i was i remember him as a much better actor in it so it was not as scary as i remember it wasn't as funny as i remember and it definitely was not as good as i remember so no i do not think it stands the test of time despite the very good special effects but it, that's it. You have about a three-minute good sequence of great special effects, and then about you know I don't know eighty-nine minutes of crap. Can I have a piece of toast? 
Get the fuck out of here, Jack. Thanks a lot. I can't take this. Am I asleep now, awake or what? I realize I don't look so hot, David. But I thought you'd be glad to see me. David! You're hurting my feelings. Hurting your feelings? Has it occurred to you that it might be unsettling to see you rise from the grave to visit me? Sorry to be upsetting you, David. But I had to come. Aren't you supposed to be buried someplace in New York? Yeah. Your parents came to my funeral. I was surprised at how many people came. Why should you be surprised? You were a very well-liked person. Yeah, I was, wasn't I? Well, I liked you. Debbie Klein cried a lot. Oh, God. Am I asleep now or what? So, so you know what she does? She's so grief-stricken. She runs to find solace in Mark Levine's bed. Mark? Levine? An asshole. Life mocks me even in death. All right, well, check us out at Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review and on follow us on Twitter at Lunchtime Movie. And keep checking out the webpage, lunchtimemoviereview.com. And if you'd like to send us an email, uh, comment about this or any other episode, you can send us an email at comments at lunchtimemoviereview.com. Keep listening. We're getting out of here right now, and you guys are invited. And I'm trying to please to the calling of your heart strength that plays soft and low. Yet all the night's magic seem to whisper and hate. Yet all the soft moonlights. This podcast is not endorsed by Universal Studios Home Entertainment and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. An American Werewolf in London, all names and sounds of an American Werewolf in London characters. And any other an American Werewolf in London related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Universal Studios Home Entertainment or their respective trademark and or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast is intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, Movie House Memories, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.